This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at Patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is The Feminist and the Sex Offender, Confronting Sexual Harm, Ending State Violence, by Judith Levine and Erica R. Miners. In the era of Me Too and mass incarceration, the feminist and the sex offender makes a powerful feminist case for accountability without punishment, and sexual safety and pleasure without injustice. With analytical clarity and narrative force, the feminist and the sex offender contends with two problems that are typically siloed—sexual and gender violence, on the one hand, and the state's unjust, ineffective, and soul-destroying response to it, on the other. Drawing on interviews, extensive research, reporting, and history, The Feminist and the Sex Offender develops an intersectional feminist approach to ending sexual violence. It maps with considerable detail the unjust sex offender regime while highlighting the alternatives we urgently need. The Feminist and the Sex Offender, Confronting Sexual Harm, Ending State Violence, by Judith Levine and Erica R. Miners, out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Last month, Jeff Bezos sent an email to Amazon employees, reporting from Amazon's S-Team, which I didn't know what that meant, so I looked it up on Google. It means Senior Leadership Team. Subject heading, Juneteenth. Quote, Over the past few weeks, the STEAM and I have spent a lot of time listening to customers and employees and thinking about how recent events in our country have laid bare the systemic racism and injustices that oppress black individuals and communities. This Friday, June 19th, is Juneteenth, the oldest known celebration commemorating the end of slavery in the U.S. I'm canceling all of my meetings on Friday, and I encourage all of you to do the same if you can. We're providing a range of online learning opportunities for employees throughout the day. Please, take some time to reflect, learn, and support each other. Slavery ended a long time ago, but racism didn't. The woke missive was signed simply Jeff, in the informal style characteristic of our society's most powerful and deeply hierarchical institutions. Warehouse workers and contract drivers, of course, didn't have any white-collar meetings to cancel. They had hard, low-paid, and insecure work to do keeping this country's private full-spectrum logistics monopoly running smoothly under the watchful gaze of management's techno-tailorist behavior surveillance dystopia. And so instead, many warehouse workers were encouraged to wear black clothing. The whole thing, of course, struck some black Amazon workers— as outrageous. Quote, what does a black shirt do for anybody in terms of social justice? Adrian Williams, a contract driver, told the New York Times. Better pay, she said, quote, would cut down the pre-existing condition that is poverty. The shameless corporate attempts to co-opt Black Lives Matter might raise concerns for some that identitarianism is inevitably leading the movement into a neoliberal corporate diversity dead end. But 
what the Amazon episode reveals is that the opposite is in fact true. The radical activists at the lead of this movement have made the materialist, anti-racist demand to defund police their priority. When sadistically profiteering companies like Amazon seek to channel that movement into the realm of abstraction, guilty white penance, executive multiculturalism, and ideational discrimination, organized people in what is now the largest protest movement in U.S. history push back, and they exploit the contradictions to push this anti-racist moment in yet more radical directions. This movement forces companies like Amazon on the defensive, and their pathetic defenses, in turn, provide Amazon workers like Adrian Williams an opportunity to do an imminent critique of Jeff Bezos and Amazon and the contradictions of their corporate diversity discourse and politics. This brings me, of course, to the book White Fragility by corporate diversity consultant Robin DiAngelo. Obviously, on some level, it is depressing as all hell that this book, informed by DiAngelo's experience being hired by bosses to make white workers engage in criticism, self-criticism sessions on their deep, bad, racist feelings, it's depressing that this has been on the New York Times bestseller list for 14 weeks. But what we're seeing is not a street movement that's empowering woke corporate neoliberalism, Rather, this movement and this moment are challenging neoliberalism at its securitized, cop, prison, border-intensive core. And so, of course, unsurprisingly, what we're seeing is the hegemonic system's woke response. Here we are with a radical left-wing anti-racist movement driving the agenda, being met with corporate wokeism on the one hand and Trump's most blood-and-soil white culture war on the other. We can fight both, and we are. This episode is my interview with Jared Loggins and Wendy Muse on what to read instead of White Fragility. It's an unusual dig episode because instead of being about one book, it is about a lot of books. Ten books, to be precise. Before we get started, this podcast is of course supported by book publishers and whatnot who advertise items that might be perfect for dig listeners like you. But the bulk of our funding comes directly from dig listeners like you, who contribute your financial support at patreon.com slash the dig. If you have not contributed yet and you can afford to do so, please take one moment now, press pause if you must, to navigate your web browser to patreon.com slash the dig. We also, if you contribute at least $10 a month, will send you a left-wing book or books in the mail as a thank you. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig we do appreciate it and this podcast does depend on it thank you okay here's jared loggins and wendy muse jared loggins is a political theorist of black politics and a phd candidate at brown university he is the author with andrew douglas of prophet of discontent martin luther king jr and the critique of racial capitalism a forthcoming book on King and his critique of racial capitalism. They explore parallels between King and the black radical tradition by arguing that at the heart of King's growing dissatisfaction with American society was an emergent critical theory that sought to expose the maddening entanglements between racism and the logic and practice of capital accumulation. Wendy Muse is a PhD candidate in history at NYU, 
where she is completing her dissertation on the impact of multiracial leftist networks forged between Brazil and Lusophone African nations during the Cold War. She is also the creator of Left Pocket Project and Podcast, which brings you the history of leftists of color one swipe at a time. I will include a link to that in the show notes. I will also include in the show notes links to any book discussed in this interview and links to any relevant Dig episodes. Jared Loggins, welcome to The Dig, and Wendy Muse, welcome back. Hi. Thank you for having me. To start out, why are so many people reading White Fragility right now, and what does that reveal about a sort of like liberal race politics that I think is experiencing a moment of crisis, but is still in some ways very hegemonic? The first thing is, I just want to get this out of the way, first of all. Um, white fragility is a phrase that was used by Black people for a really long time. Um, and I noticed that she, that the author of White Fragility actually says in the book that she coined the term. So I think that pretty much gets the ball rolling for um, the problems <laughs> with the book uh, right off the bat. Uh, but I think it's it's something that is somewhat comfortable for people to start off reading. And that includes potentially black people as well. Um, obviously like black people are going to be more familiar with the issues of racism because we face them daily. But I think sometimes um, that approach where it's more about diversity and inclusion, as opposed to direct confrontation, um, not only with your, the people you would consider like oppressors, but also the self. I think that sort of eases us into discussing things in a way that's more comfortable. Um, and so obviously, if this is your first rodeo where you're, you're discussing issues of race and police brutality and whatnot um, for the first time, and I should be more clear, racism, not just race. Um, if you're discussing this for the first time, something like this is a nice um, sort of padded room for you to get comfortable in um, and not be quite as confrontational. And so I think that's, that's just like the first off uh, reason. And the other reason, I think is because people like to hear things from those who make them feel most comfortable. And I think in this case, because D'Angelo herself is white, it's a much easier, um, I think it's approachable for some people in ways that perhaps a book that was more, that was written by a person of color, a black person in particular, um, may not be. So McKinsey, uh, the, the management consulting firm, uh, they sort of uh, released this, uh, this sort of diversity report right before you know, white fragility goes to goes to press in 2018. Uh, among other things, you know, they they say that uh, diverse and inclusive companies basically have a sort of competitive advantage, right? They're more likely to, as they put it, um, outperform on profitability metrics uh, over companies that 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 are not diverse. And so, what this tells us uh, is that you know there is a sort of imperative, you know, among these companies to sort of pursue a certain kind of sort of anti-racist or, or anti-sexist uh, discourse. And it's very much sort of entangled in, uh, you know, a kind of corporate viability uh, in, in, and in the, the, the pursuit of, in the pursuit of profit. And so, you know, if companies are looking to, you know, sort of bring into the workplace, you know, these sort of trainers and training manuals, uh, they can sort of uh, speak to uh, prevailing uh, liberal norms about racism at root a set of psychological dispositions, right, a sort of matter of the heart, or, you know, racism as sort of solvable through a kind of individual atonement, uh, you know, they will have found a kind of guidance in a, in, a, in a book like White Fragility. And also, you know, these these corporations will have, will have also found, you know, appealing in, in White Fragility, 
you know, this sort of remarkably narrow account of racism that sort of deflects attention uh, from the ways that corporate power, you know, has sort of been centrally involved uh, in the in the reproduction of, of racial disregard uh, through dispossession, wealth hoarding, and and so on. And so in this way, you know, we can see these sort of diversity consultants, uh, you know, not simply as trying to facilitate, you know, a kind of workplace kumbaya or whatever you want to call it. <laughs> you know, they're they're also sort of doing a kind of crisis management, you know, for you know these these corporations who would very much like for racism and and gender depression uh, to to sort of only be about attitudes, which is to say, not about capitalism, right? So so this is you know, one way of sort of thinking about these sort of cascading, uh, the sort of cascading of these like corporate statements in support of, in support of Black Lives Matter, right, in the, in the last few weeks, right? There's a sort of, this sort of potential crisis that corporate boardrooms believe, right, can sort of be resolved by sort of supporting diversity and, and inclusion, leaning into diversity and inclusion. But, you know, the problem is that, you know, the, the, the sort of dissonance is sort of pretty obvious, right? So like, Take Amazon, for example. You know, this is the the same company that that, you know, in one corner of the mouth is like, you know, we support anti-racism, Black Lives Matter, but this is the same company that sort of fired and and harassed, you know, a black worker at a distribution center uh in, in Long Island for basically, you know, demanding better working conditions. And had like a media strategy to stigmatize him as like inarticulate. That's right. And so and so, you know, what we've got is like diversity and commitments to anti-racism coming from above. But then we have exploitation sort of crushing the workers below. Right. And a, and a book like, you know, White Fragility actually cannot possibly put us in a position uh, to, to sort of respond to this, this, uh, this sort of reproduction uh, of, of racialized vulnerability. Two things really, really stick out to me about the book, which obviously I, I haven't read and don't plan on, <laughs> on reading. <laughs> what one is this I, this kind of the idea that that racism will be solved through this ideational work of white people doing kind of self-help, uh, self-transformation work on themselves. And then and then two this and both of you have touched on both of these is that to this emphasis on diversity at the upper echelons of workplaces rather than dealing with with the racism embedded in the boss worker relationship, let alone like talking about diversity, how these sort of consultants never seem to emphasize the diversity that would come from the unfinished fights to to desegregate schools and neighborhoods. One of the the sort of problems here too is that like, and by the way, speaking of like all this talk now about not reading Marx, he <laughs> <laughs> actually he actually gives us a sort of profoundly sort of you know, important formulation, which is that all of our sort of human relationships under capitalism are sort of mediated by exchange. This is all the way down. And they're mediated by by exchange in such a way that like it's not simply that, you know, we can get together, you know, and simply treat each other in the right in the in the right kinds of ways. So it's 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 that, you know, the fact that we cannot treat each other uh, in the right kinds of ways is sort of hamstrung, you know, in the in the sort of Marx our lands by the fact that we live in a in a world that sort of fetishizes commodities. And so to some extent, this sort of morality actually fails us in the sense that we can be perfectly upstanding, you know, and we would still be sort of structurally compelled to, to pursue the competitive advantage, you know, to sort of jockey for position, uh, to, to gentrify neighborhoods, to disinvest in neighborhoods at our at our discretion, 
and ultimately, like, we would continue to sort of think ultimately in, in terms of, of exchange, you know? So we have to find a way to sort of upend what, what Martin Luther King Jr. called a, a sort of thing-oriented society. And we cannot sort of upend this sort of thing-oriented society until we get clear about what sort of structurally prevents us uh, from, from doing that, and, and that's capitalism. It sort of feels like the book itself is also a microcosm of what we're seeing happening with some of the, the protests as well. And so one of the things that I remember seeing is that, and even hearing people call into shows and whatnot to talk about white people in particular, um, we're saying things like, I live in a predominantly white neighborhood. I live in a wealthy, predominantly white neighborhood. We're having a little protest to get together. I'm the only one. What should I do? Right. I've heard, I've heard people asking these questions on talk shows and, and asking them online and things like that. And it makes me just kind of stop and say, okay, it's great that they're protesting. It's great that they're doing something. But then the larger question becomes, well, why do you live in a segregated neighborhood in the first place? Like, like yes. why do you go to a segregated school? Why do you have no black friends? I think in particular, COVID has also kind of put this under the microscope because what we saw, at least in the beginning, the earlier stages of the virus was that wealthier people were bringing it into the country by virtue of just being more likely to travel. But then we saw greater infection rates and deaths among people of color and particularly poor people of color who were working at the front lines. And so we had this disconnect because you then say, okay, wait a second, these social groups are not overlapping. Um, and so I think with books like White Fragility, and again, I also have not read it, but I, I'm familiar with her message. I've seen her <laughs> give talks and things like that online um, and, and some podcasts and whatnot. You know, I don't think that the intentions are necessarily bad, but at the end of the day, the intentions don't matter. And you have to look at it structurally, which is something that Jared has also touched on quite a bit. Um, and if the structure doesn't match institutionally, if we don't have a match to the sort of personal um, and interpersonal dynamic, then it doesn't really play out the way that I think some people want it to. I also find that there's this constant self-flagellation or self-flagellative uh, aspect to the mm -hmm. book, which is kind of interesting and I think falls in line with the way we handle a lot of social issues in this country in the sense that, you know, as long as you yourself are purified of any sin, right, then then you can throw the, the first stone, to be honest. Um, and so I think that some people feel like once they've done the, the quote-unquote work by reading this book and by questioning their own interpersonal forms of racism or bias, then they've, they've done all they need to do. They don't have to go further than that um, because they don't need to tear the whole church down. They just need to be a good, a good con you know, like member of the congregation. And so I think that that also becomes a part of the problem with the book and why it's not connecting um, the structural side of things. Yeah. And instead of taking concrete political action and examining their place within the world in, in that way. I think a lot of liberal whites will be probably reaching out to the very few black people they know if they know any to, to impose extremely weird conversations on them. Yeah. And I've gotten some of those. I've gotten some of those messages, actually. Um, and I don't. <laughs> and to be completely honest, like um, I am upfront with the way I feel about it. But I also I think I, I applaud people for taking the steps. Right. 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 So I don't want to completely discourage them. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, I emphasize in these responses. <laughs> to such emails that I need you to go beyond just sending me an email, right? Like consider where you live, consider your friend group, consider where you spend your money, who you vote for, et cetera. It has to go beyond just like you sending me a nice email or white people being nice to people of color in general. It has to go deeper than that. And we, I think perhaps the onus might be on us um, as people, like on people of color, which is something I don't like to say, 
but uh, it might be on us to kind of lay out what that looks like because I think some people are so lost, but I still, I think they, they have it in their hearts in this case to do the right thing. And I think we have to sometimes um, put those breadcrumbs down for them to get the message better. That being nice reference, uh, being nice to people of color reference just uh, popped uh, get out into my head. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I would vote for Obama three times if I could. Yeah. One thing that's that, that's interesting about this white fragility D'Angelo phenomenon is that as much, you know, as I just sort of like mocked her book for this emphasis on personal transformation, the left also very much has always wanted to make new people, new subjects. But but I think in a very different sort of way, say by by organizing a multiracial workplace into a union that advocates for economic and racial justice instead of, you know, encouraging guilty white liberals to, quote, work on themselves. How do you? So, yeah, I don't want to toss out this idea of remaking people and how how they are in the world. How how do you distinguish, Jared, the, the, the distinction between the sort of purely ideational liberal approach and the left project? You know, we should I mean in many ways, you know, we're trying to sort of model this in in the in the in the podcast today, which is to sort of like read and center, you know, the the sort of work that's already sort of been been done to sort of think through the relationship between between racism and capitalism. And, you know, by sort of turning to uh the black radical tradition, by thinking about the sort of long history of, of black radicalism, in other words, by sort of coming up, I guess, with with sort of different ancestors, right? Like what like what would it mean to sort of begin with the story about, you know, the sort of left is sort of having its origins or sort of being at its most vibrant by centering someone like Hubert Harrison or Du Bois or something like the, the Institute of the Black World or Republic of New Africa or some of these other sort of radical left, uh, radical left black projects. Um, and to do that uh, would mean that, you know, the left would have to take seriously the way that you know, sort of uh, black radical subjects have been sort of at the heart of thinking about and mobilizing against uh, what has been so deeply problematic about capitalism, which is the sort of exposure of, of of black and brown people in particular, but poor people generally, to a kind of vulnerability to to, to premature death, and that tradition is 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 already there. So I sort of am inclined to say that part of what needs to happen is a kind of, you know, that we have to do some sort of epistemic kind of intellectual work to sort of uh, just lay out, you know, the sort of tradition that is already there for us, you know, if if we're willing to sort of just just find it and, and think with it. Wendy, it seems like there's this kind of interrelated problem that Jared's pointing out. On the one hand, there's a the, the left, especially white people on the left, not emphasizing the, the black left tradition within the left in the U.S. as core to the left history in the U.S., a history of black left, leftism without which the history of the American left is impossible to think about, clearly, would not exist as it does. And then on the other hand, interrelatedly, but but distinctly, the liberal anti-racist discourse centering a certain type of, of of black and multicultural experience, but rendering the black left invisible as a central part of the black tradition. Right. Um, and that's definitely something that obviously I've worked on quite a bit. Yes. Um, just with like left the left pocket project, for example, by being frustrated with the liberal side that basically downplays or completely ignores us um, or says that all black people are um, centrist pragmatists uh, who care a ton about Joe Biden or what I fill in the blank message that's necessary for electoral politics um, while at the same time sort of co-opting the message of people and even the 
the, the presence of people like Angela Davis um, to push forth that message, ironically not recognizing that she was like a Marxist-Leninist at one point. <laughs> um, so there, there are moments where I am frustrated by that, but doing my best to get people to read. Um, but I do think, going back just a tad, um, the question about the self... On the one hand, I do want better white people. You know what I mean? Like right. trademark. I want better white people. <laughs> I want the new white man or the new white woman. Because I think at the end of the day, what's important about that, even though that reduces things down to the individual, I think individuals come together for a collective, right? Um, and so once, you know, especially thinking about the ways that black and, and people of color, indigenous people as well, have been alienated by so many left groups and leftists in, as a whole because of racism, right? We, and we're going to talk about this in some of the books that we are going to be discussing today, um, but how that history has also been harmful and damaging to the progress of leftism, especially in a place like the United States. So on the one hand, I do think that is it is important for people to work on themselves. Um, but I think what's frustrating about that is that there aren't enough I think coming together as a collective, like once you work, once you work on yourself, then what? There's a disconnect between like the personal and the collective um, action. And so I, I, I wonder, you know, I think, I guess I should say, I think it's the left's job then to not only instill the importance of individual work, but then also to talk about how that extends beyond the personal and goes into the structural, goes into how, as I said before, how you vote, where you live. I, th I think also the kind of work that you do as well, like if you're working on Wall Street, reject your job. As you're, if you're working as a police officer, reconsider what you're doing, you know, fight for the opposite side, fight for the people that you are actively oppressing. Um, and even, even things like areas where, you know, all three of us are involved in some way in academia, kind of questioning those too. And I think um, using your jobs or, or your positionality in the world in a way that's subversive to help um, and to be on the side of people who are being oppressed within it. So I think that's a way to kind of do that, to do that. And, you know, one one other interesting thing, too, about this is that, you know, so like D'Angelo sort of bills herself, you know, as sort of coming out of the sort of whiteness, sort of critical whiteness studies tradition. But she actually is quite at odds with the sort of arguments that someone like uh, Noel Ignatiev or, or David Rodiger make, right, about the abolition of whiteness and what's actually required uh, of, of individual white people to, to sort of upend capitalism. And so it actually sort of sort of fits nicely with, with what Wendy is saying about like, you know, it's not just personalized sort of privatized story. Um, it, it also involves a sort of abolition uh, or, kind of, or kind of reimagining of the sort of structures that reproduce, uh, that reproduce whiteness. Let's get into the books that people should be reading instead of white fragility. You each brought, brought five. And I want to start with a book that I did an episode on, which is Blacks in and Out of the Left by Michael Dawson. Wendy, you you suggested this book. Why why is this book important? How what are some of the the key issues that emerge when when we look at the history of the role of black leftists and how they've related to the broader US left? Mm -hmm. I should say first off that like my list, it was really hard to put together a list of five. So I hate you for that, Daniel. Um, it was so complicated, especially considering, you know, I have to read a lot for, you know, a doctoral work and then I'm reading a lot for left POC and I'm reading a lot just in general and I'm learning so many things in the process. And so it's very difficult to just pick five. Um, yeah, these aren't the best five necessarily. These are five that <laughs> Wendy thought is, would be useful at this moment. Right. 
And there are five that I chose because there were certain things that I wanted to emphasize. Like when you asked us to pick five, I said, okay, I want to get beyond just the white fragility model, right? And actually choose some things that I think can push us further along, um, especially for those who might already kind of understand that, hey, racism is bad and police brutality is bad. Like if we can go beyond that. Um, so that I should say that first of all, um, that this is, this is a list for people who understand that racism and um, racial capitalism and violence from police are not novel concepts, right? These are generally understood as, as a problem. Um, it's also a list for people who are searching for sort of better understandings of black leftism and, and or um, a kind of sense of black autonomy within the movements that we've um, led and comprised of in the fight for our lives. Um, and I also wanted to create a list um, that really talked more about, or talked to, I should say as well, black people who also wanted to learn more about our contributions to political movements. So this is not just a list for like white people to be less racist, but more of kind of um, an evolving chunk of, of books um, and ideas that are coming from these books that I think can help even people of color and black people move into a space where we haven't learned about certain things. I know for speaking for myself, even though I went to XYZ school and, and whatnot, there were many things missing from my education that I did not learn about my own history um, and the history of the black diaspora as a whole until I was in well into grad school. Um, so I have to say that these books are things that are, they cover topics, I should say, that were addressed much later in my life and that I hope that for many people reading them um, can introduce them to new concepts that they find helpful. So to answer your question about um, Blacks in and out of the left, I think it's a really, really, really crucial book for people to read right now, especially because we're on the heels, sort of tail end of um, the Sanders campaign and we're going into the general election looking with you know, like really sad eyes at what's <laughs> happening altogether. I mean, I, speaking again for myself, I'm rather depressed about what happened, not just because I'm like a Sanders stan or something, but I think just because that was one moment, sort of glimmer of hope politically for a country that's dead set on on literally killing itself right now. Um, so it was a bit frustrating to see his his campaign fall apart, but we saw so many of the things repeat themselves that happened in 2016 come around again for 2020. And I think that that the Sanders campaign in and of itself is sort of a um, microcosmic, a microcosm, I should say, of, of some of the problems that Michael Dawson himself addresses in the book. And I just want to bring up a quick example. Um, the other day I was watching the Real News Network and Marcus Farrell, who is a Sanders supporter and organizer, who's an organizer um, and campaign staff member on the 2016 campaign. And then um, he left for the 2020 campaign, but was still generally a supporter of Sanders. Um, but he and several other black organizers who had worked for the campaign campaign said that there were considerable problems within the campaign, particularly because Bern other Bernie staff members didn't really have a Southern strategy. They didn't listen necessarily to the Black staff members. And that um, he argued that the Black outreach relied primarily on you know individuals and not so much on community networks. Um, and he also said basically that he just didn't feel like they were all that interested in listening to and making changes that were significant with regard to getting black, sort of assembling a black voter body. Um, and so I think in a lot of ways, this campaign as a political project was out of touch with with the realities of the black community. And I don't mean that to say that like, we don't need Medicare for all and we don't need college for all. We need those things. But I think the method of getting there and getting black people in this country as a, as a larger voting body on board, there were lots of missing pieces um, that unfortunately the campaign was not 
quite willing to grapple with. And then as a result of their failures, people either, I would I often saw people blaming black voters, um, which is not the direction we had gone in previous years. And with regard to other demographics, generally, we don't look at them and say it's their fault that the candidate lost. Um, but we definitely see that a lot with regard to black voters. Um, but the other thing I think that, that happened quite a bit was just that there was a downplaying of the importance of identity politics. And when I say identity politics, I'm not saying in the sense that like in, in the sort of stereotypical neoliberal version that we are often used to hearing about, I'm meaning more to the like back to the roots idea of what identity politics mean um, in the sense of like the Combahee River Collective um, version of IT Paul. My point here is that I feel like a lot of the blame was placed in the wrong areas. And it's something that Michael Dawson himself covers quite a bit in the book. This book obviously came out before Bernie Sanders was running for president. It came out in 2013. Um, but it sort of touches on a lot of the unforced errors um, and in some cases intentional problems that exist on the left. Um, most notably one that I think Barbara Ransby has also done a very good job in covering in that a lot of the time white progressives even if they're well-intentioned, don't all, they're not always on top of things in terms of what is being experienced on the ground by people of color who are often what we would say reductively, but I think accurately, the canaries in the coal mine um, for larger structural issues. And we bear the brunt oftentimes of you know capitalist overreach. And so um, to ignore the needs of those groups, and in some cases what Dawson argues, not only ignore, but to um, intentionally distort and downplay because some white progressives and white leftists saw that there was such an integral connection between leftism and the black community that they felt threatened by it. So I think that there are sometimes aspects of the book where he's he's basically presenting um, the white left as the, the enemy, the direct enemy um, to black leftists and black leftist thought, um, which is unfortunate, but I think is something that we continue to see repeated into the present by virtue of people who don't necessarily want to address race as a critical issue that's holding people back, or racism as a critical issue that's holding people back from progress in terms of economic equality. Yeah, really important points that this isn't just about the left doing right by black people, which of course is a basic moral imperative, but it's like an objective reality, as you say, Wendy, and which Dawson makes clear and which which Mike Davis made clear in my recent interview with him on prisoners of the American dream, that the left cannot succeed in the United States without black struggle at its core. Jared, what's your take? I was going to sort of add uh, here. I mean, I think Wendy sort of uh, touches on, you know, something that's really important here, which is that it's not self-evident that a kind of sort of anti-racism follows from uh, the social democratic project, which is to say, like, it has to be fought for. The, you know, the sort of white leftists, uh, you know, a la the Sanders campaign, like have to actually take seriously, you know, the kinds of the kinds of vulnerabilities, uh, the kinds of questions that are being uh, that are being raised by, by by black folks. This is not to sort of, you know, do do this sort of vulgar, you know, identity politics, you know. No, it's, it's actually sort of, you know, as Wendy point, points out, is actually just sort of a way of uh, getting clear about the specific ways that racial capitalism sort of uh, is is sort of borne out uh, in the lives in the lives of black people. Think about where we are now, right? Like we're in the middle of a pandemic, you know, that is sort of exposed uh, the rot at the heart of the healthcare system. Black people are sort of facing, you know, and just unimaginable kind of kind of death and vulnerability um, as a result, right? We're 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 sort of in the middle of a of a sort of ongoing 
you know, sort of Black-led uprising against, against police violence. You know, we're continuing to see Black folks sort of mass warehoused in prisons, right? And it all raises a question, which is that, you know, what would it mean to sort of take seriously the sort of claims, the grievances, uh, the concerns of, of Black people? You know, like, it seems obvious to me that, you know, we should be centering a sort of Black left perspective, in part because, um, you know, it, it sort of helps us to sort of resolve, helps the left to, to sort of resolve this kind of, you know, overwrought distinction between anti-racism and, 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 and anti-capitalism. No, they're, they're intertwined. Mm-hmm. They're intertwined so deeply, and they can't be disentangled. And, and this was obvious, you know, in the sort of, in the, in the, in the history uh, of the Black left. It's obvious. I mean, you take, you take, you take a figure, you take an activist, whether you're talking about someone like Hubert Harrison or Du Bois, or even someone like King, Ella Baker, Fannie Lou Hamer, it was obvious that there was a way, there was a sort of entanglement between, between capitalism and, and, and racism in such a way that demands uh, that we sort of, that we, that we sort of take seriously their, their interplay. And it's, it's the black left uh, that, that sort of gives us that sort of rich uh, conceptual analysis. Or Harry Haywood, as uh, Dawson talks about mm-hmm. in his book. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Jason Perez made an interesting point in terms of the Sanders campaign in a recent interview I did with him, Kathy Cohen and Malika Jabali, that, that the campaign really did address the radical demands of Latino movement leaders and that that combined with a really solid Latino organizing strategy was massively successful. And that provides an opportunity for a contrast for the lack of that happening, either in terms of the dialogue with black radical politics and a black voter organizing campaign. Right. I think there's also, there's also, there are also, because I work on Brazil, there are elements of Latin American political organizing that sometimes downplay race and that have a history of downplaying race and emphasizing class that I think sometimes is more legible to people um, who are coming from that tradition. And so sometimes I've, I've been wondering about that as well. Like, are there, is, is the language of the Sanders campaign, both in 2016 and, and somewhat still in 2020, um, more familiar to people who are coming from a Latino, Latina political organizing background. Um, it's been a question that's been raised by other activists um, as well, kind of wondering what, what failed specifically with Black voters in the U.S. Um, versus um, Latino and particularly Latino immigrant populations in the U.S. Uh, with the Sanders campaign. I just wanted to add really quickly as well, I think that Dawson does an excellent job just sort of laying out the historiography of the black left that I think is missing from some of the analysis that we've read, uh, or at least analysis like that of D'Angelo, right? Um, There's not necessarily going to be a connection and such a deep digging um, because Dawson himself sort of points out what's missing in so many analyses by leftist historians as well, which I think is important for us to think about um, because the history that we get from, on the one hand, sort of the, I would argue, Sadly, the anti-racist grift is one that often ignores um, things like union organizing. It ignores histories of immigrant organizing and things like that that I think Dawson's work does um, emphasize. And then on the other hand, the sort of white, formerly new left liberals like Todd Gitlin, who blame black radicalism for destroying the, the, the good project of the early civil rights movement. The next book is Democracy Remixed by Kathy Cohen, which I have not read but am planning on reading. And, and Jared, you put this on, on the list. And I want to start by asking you why this book is important because it's, it's uh, and I'm reading from the synopsis here, it's a book that diagnoses how, quote, 
young black Americans today continue to be plagued by low levels of employment, high levels of incarceration, and a profound lack of trust in the government and broader political community. It was published in 2010 after Obama's presidency had made it seem to many that racism was effectively over, like the polling on so-called you know race relations in this country among white and black people and, and others was just like very high at that point. People are like, things are good. But four years later, in 2014, BLM erupted from this very contradiction that Cohen was identifying identifying at the time. What, what did Cohen see that so many observers, pundits, just people were, were missing at the time? So the sort of basic point of the book, you know, is, is that, you know, we can't understand uh, the sort of future, you know, of American politics until we understand, you know, the sort of ways that young Black people um, who, you know, sort of have been traditionally sort of left out of of political analysis and, and punditry sort of take center stage. And Cohen herself is sort of worried that, you know, in the sort of scholarly literature on political behavior uh, and political participation, you know, there's a sort of stunning absence of reflection, observation, thinking with uh, young young Black people. And so, you know, there's this sort of this sort of simple but sort of profound uh, account at, at the at the heart of the book, which is what do young black Americans want? What do they what do they desire? What are their political commitments? And so, you know, she's a political scientist. Um, she sort of conducts these sort of surveys um, uh, after the election of Obama in which she's sort of asking uh, young black people sort of series of questions, uh, you know, basically about the, the status uh, of their lives and their, their thoughts on on American politics. And she finds that many of them are apathetic. Many of them believe that sort of racism, you know, is a, is a sort of enduring, you know, if not uh, impenetrable uh, sort of feature of American politics, which is, which is, of course, like in opposition to what she also finds, which is, which is that some of the, many of the white respondents that she surveys don't have this view at all. They think everything is pretty much rosy that, you know, the election of Barack Obama basically invited in this sort of you know, the, this kind of post-racial, post-racial moment. So even there, there's a sort of disconnect between young, young, young black, young black people and, and young and young white people um, that she's sort of taking note of. And then there is a profound uh, distrust that is the sort of result, you know, as she sort of points out, of sort of systematic uh, neglect uh, of institutional disinvestment uh, of the fact that so many, so many young black people just uh, do not feel as if the political leadership uh, is is speaking to them. And so by attending to this, you know, this sort of resentment and distrust, you know, she can sort of rightly claim years later as as Black Lives Matter sort of erupts in, into the streets, you know, following following the, the death of Michael Brown, that these young people actually have every reason, you know, to feel to feel as if as if, you know, their lives are are in crisis. You know, they have a reason to be to be to be mad at the system have every reason to want a, a sort of dramatic uh, transformation of American society. And so today, and I think thanks in part to Cohen's study, right, it should, you know, sort of surprise no one uh, that much of the vibrant organizing on the ground, you know, is happening in the hands of young Black people, many of them queer and trans people, and, you know, a, a sort of huge segment uh, of young Black people also happen to be largely supportive of 
you know, the social democratic left. And part of that is because I think of a sort of growing dissatisfaction, uh, you know, with, with the Obama years, the, the curtain came down. And I think, you know, one, you know, additional lesson, you know, that we can learn from the book is, you know, to follow the lead of, of young black people, young black organizers, which is, you know, there's an article that, that I think just, just came out in, in the nation uh, by Barbara Ransby in which she basically makes this argument, right? So much of the sort of vibrant, organizing is happening is happening uh is being led by by young black people and so what would it mean for the for the left to sort of take the lead of of the of these young folks who have a very clear and incisive account uh of the world of the world that that they want to see and you know one of the things that you know these these young people are sort of pointing out are identifying is that you know by sort of you know addressing their vulnerabilities we will all be freer as a, as a result. Yeah, but I think, again, you know, this this sort of idea of the canary in the coal mine, I think, comes up. Um, I haven't read Colin's work, at least this particular work, but I think that's relevant. And I agree on the, the points that you mentioned with regard to Ransby as well. I think the other thing that's interesting about looking at the protests now in relation to the argument that you just presented from Cohen is the simple fact that, like, I think some people weren't expecting this necessarily. And what we saw was a sort of rejection of um, a very, very stark rejection of what I would argue is sort of the class reductionist approach to politics. And I, I recognize that some people are called class reductionists, I think unfairly, simply for mentioning uh economics, which is an important aspect of any sort of discussion of racism <laughs> in this country or anywhere, right? Um, but I do feel like that reality sort of hit some people in the face who were saying, no, we shouldn't talk about race. It's not that serious. It's not, you know, or, or we should talk about race only through the message of class because that's more unifying and we don't want to alienate these white people or these white voters. Um, again, something that, that Dawson recounts was happening in with the CPUSA and others. So it's just, it's very frustrating, I think, to kind of uh, one of the thing I one of the things I'm seeing and experiencing myself, uh, but also that's coming out in all these readings, is that people keep reinventing the wheel, and the wheel has already been made, right? The wheel has been set. There are black people, there are people of color, there are indigenous people who are who are very very solidly building this wheel that I think people are rejecting. I mean, they're rejecting it because of issues with their own sort of racial chauvinism or nationalism, and it's unfortunate because we would be, I would argue, and I think many would agree in the readings and maybe on this panel, I think we would be a lot further along if people would sort of get rid of this sense of racial chauvinism and recognize the message that that people who, again, are bearing this very directly, um, bearing capitalism very directly, what we're saying and, and what our experiences mean into in terms of a larger left politics. There is, though, also a critique of, of so-called identity politics that comes from certain corners of of the black left, um, most notably Adolf Reed, Cedric Johnson, what do you two make of their critique and the extent to which there is a problem with a certain type of identitarianism in in aspects of the left and and amongst liberals and in, in particular? What what do you think they they get right? What do you think they get they get wrong? But, you know, I think there there's a lot of work that Adolf Reed has done that I very much respect, um, especially a lot of his earlier work where he's critical of the sort of weaponization of um, identity in a way that's harmful and that takes away from the potential importance of class analysis. Right. Um, and I think it's like class notes. Yes, exactly. Um, I think his I think a lot of the work from that period is 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 crucial. I'm 
cautioned to respond with regard to some of his contemporary work, which I feel is uh, takes away from the revolutionary potential, or at least under underestimates some of the revolutionary potential of young people who are organizing, such as the members of the Democratic Socialist of America who created a People of Color Caucus. I think sometimes there's a moment where, where people who've been in these movements for a while can advise, but also can step back and recognize that perhaps people now aren't doing things exactly as they wish, but that there is still revolutionary potential there and it's taking a new form. But at the same time, I understand and welcome uh, their critiques and, and understand the place, like where their caution is coming from, because they've seen things that perhaps we haven't, or they're experiencing, they've experienced things that we haven't. And they've seen these movements become co-opted and removed from, from those who really are, are invested in, in changing the world. Jared? I want to sort of step on the landmine and sort of speak to some of the more sort of some of the more like contemporary things that that, you know, he he's sort of been writing about. But I will say that, you know, much of the, the sort of powerful reflections about the relationship between between ra- race and class. Right. Like Adolf Reed himself is making right in the 90s. He himself acknowledges that there is a sort of way that a kind of uh, sort of race-based vulnerability is sort of at the heart of the sort of capitalist project. He acknowledges that. So, you know, I think it's a, it's a you know, to sort of see this, this kind of transition, this sort of shift in, in his thinking, uh, almost to a kind of class re- reductionism um, is, is, is strange to watch. The next book on the, the list, Wendy, you, you suggested, it's Mapping Diaspora by Patricia Pino. Why... Is this book important? What do we learn about Black American politics and identity when they're placed in this Pan-American diasporic context? So um, in Mapping Diaspora, Pino talks a lot about this idea of, or this this concept of roots tourism, which is a fairly new-ish phenomenon. It's predominantly um, patronized by people in the U.S. and Europe, Black people specifically, um, who go to nations that are known as sort of Afro-diasporic sites and explore the local history and try to sort of connect with local people um, with regard to their culture, religious practices, um, historical struggle and the like, um, and draw connections between themselves and their own struggles in the U.S. or in some cases Europe with those places. And Brazil has become, as of late, um, one such site, particularly Bahia, the, the city of Bahia. And, or sorry, the state of Bahia, my apologies. Um, and so one of the things that, that she talks about in particular that I think is important for us to carry into our discussion and also any sort of activism that, that goes forward is this idea of the baggage that we carry um, as U.S. Americans into the quote unquote third world um, or places that are less developed than the United States um, socioeconomically. And one of the problems that she draws out is this uh, this constant need for Americans to connect while at the same time sort of ignoring um, significant economic and and social privileges and in the process of this exchange. Um, And I think her work is is really important for us to keep in mind because we've seen some Black organizations trying to make connections abroad, particularly Black Lives Matter, who has been to Brazil. I believe they went to Sao Paulo. um, And they've also been to Palestine, among other places where they've tried to forge connections with local activists, which I think were largely successful 
successful. But the problem that continues to arise and that I've even directly confronted with regard to some Black Lives Matter activists is that there is a lack of understanding of the histories, the local histories of Black activism or, you know, anti-policing activism, anti-capitalist activism and the like. Um, And unfortunately, sometimes Americans can fall into the trap of seeing our struggle as primordial or the most important, while not recognizing that places like Brazil and Black people in Brazil specifically face disproportionate levels of police violence that sort of dwarfs whatever we see here. So if you look at the United States, let's say 100 people are killed a month in the United States as a whole. In Brazil, 100 people will be killed in one tiny city in a week. And so it's important for us to recognize and have perspective um, when we're having these exchanges. The other thing that I think is important, too, about her work is that she talks a lot about this this problem of the U.S. left um, and U.S. Black people who are engaging in this roots tourism sort of freezing in time the occupants or the inhabitants of another country in their struggles um, and not recognizing necessarily that they have progressed, they have done things, they have seen change, they have fought for their rights. And instead, we've been in the U.S. falling into this trap of seeing Black Black people within the diaspora as somehow left behind or sort of frozen in a space where we have advanced 50 years beyond. Like Um, folkloricized, romanticized, noble, savage kind of Exactly, exactly. And so it's dangerous. And and, um, Spike Lee actually committed this himself. He made the statement that, you know, black Brazilians are 50 years behind us because they ended slavery later than us. Um, And it's a dangerous trope to fall into. And I think it's it's one that Patricia and other authors have advised against. Um, And that's important for us, but also incredibly crucial as we expand, I think, necessarily beyond the United States to learn from people in other countries and how we can enact um, sort of activist activism in our own communities. And Wendy, I take it that that many of these visitors, U.S. American visitors, are, are middle or upper middle class Black Americans? Correct. Yes. Jared, do you have a, any, any, any thoughts before I ask another question? I think this is, you know, sort of, this is absolutely right. I haven't read the book, but, you know, I think there is a kind of uh, impulse in, you know, some corners of, of of sort of black black thought to sort of in black movements to sort of, you know, fall into this trap of of American centeredness. And you know, I sort of think about, you know, what might it mean? Sort of just confront the sort of translation problems between the sort of, you know, the sort of struggles uh, that are that are that are sort of unfolding uh, in in the U.S. context uh, and and struggles that are sort of unfolding elsewhere. And, you know, it just strikes me that one of the things that just needs to happen uh, at the base level is just a kind of deep sort of self-reflection uh, and self-criticism uh, of the ways in which um, even those of us who uh, sort of embrace and sort of take on a kind of a kind of radical politics oftentimes unwittingly sort of reproduce uh, structures, uh, stru- a kind of structural violence that sort of plays out in a kind of international context. And that just means that, uh, we, you know, we have to sort of confront, we have to confront those contradictions. We have to think about what that means for Black uh, in sort of diasporic movements, um, global movements at home and abroad. For either of you, this makes me think about the question of, of, of what we can learn from the third worldist Black radical moment of, of Black power in the entire New Left era, sort a sort of internationalism that the U.S. left lacks today, but that was so front and center during the moment of global third world decolonization, national liberation struggles? 
I mean, I, it's something that I would like to see revived for sure. But I, but at the same time, what I've seen happening in my own personal experience is the kind of inverse of that. So what I'm seeing more and more is that in Brazil, for example, um, in universities and among left circles, there's a celebration of people like Angela Davis. Um, there's a celebration of Martin Luther King, of Malcolm X. And there's somewhat of a... I don't want to say ignorance because people do know of these local figures, but there's not necessarily the same emphasis on local black leaders um, in, in the Brazil, in the Brazilian historical tradition of sorts, um, in the same way that you see an emphasis of U.S. leaders in the same realm. So that is something that I think will be fascinating, interesting to watch going forward and what that's going to look like if there will be a sort of return to the source and an attempt to nationalize this narrative or not. I, I don't know what to make of it. And I'm con somewhat concerned, actually, about what it means that if we as if people in the U.S. who are mo movement activists are going abroad and then at the same time, the message they're learning is just um, sort of a reinscribing of their own histories as that's being claimed as a local one, if I'm making sense, right? So, so Angela Davis is someone who's important to Americans, but she's also important to Brazilians. But then what happens to where's the Brazilian Angela Davis? She exists, right? Um, there are people who, who are local and doing this work, but they're downplayed, they're not heard of, they're not discussed. And I, I'm concerned about what that means in the long run. Huh. That's a very interesting point because it makes me think about the, in a probably mostly positive, but but as you're pointing out, Wendy, maybe complex and not entirely positive way that the current Black Lives Matter uprisings in the U.S. have become a reference point for struggles all over the world, from Europe to Africa to, to Latin America. And it makes me wonder whether there's this way in which the imperial world system also makes domestic subaltern groups within the metropole of that system, i.e. the United States, a sort of reference point today for, for third world struggles. Jared, the next book you proposed suggested is Racecraft by Barbara and Karen Fields, who I interviewed about that book, I think maybe like two years ago now. Why, just to start out, is this book important? You know, I sort of recommended this book in part because, um, you know, I think that, you know, one of the, the problems that's sort of happening um, sort of broadly in, you know, sort of liberal circles is, you know, the sort of conflation of uh, race with racism uh, on the one hand um, and also this way in which you know this sort of problem where sort of class sort of critiques get just totally totally sort of evacuated in analysis of of racism and you know that's sort of at the heart of what of their of their book um, you know they they basically you know make this argument that you know, racism doesn't come from race. Racism creates race. You know, as they say, transforming it from something that an aggressor does into something the target is. Um, and in the book, they give this really nice and I think helpful sort of formulation. And they distinguish between race, racism, and what they call racecraft. You know, they say that, you know, the term race uh, sort of stands for the, the conception of the doctrine that, you know, nature produces humankind into distinct groups, each defined by these different traits, uh, these sort of biological biological traits. They go on to say that racecraft is the sort of fitting of, of actual humans in, into any such grid, right, which inevitably sort of calls uh, for this kind of maneuvering, which they call racecraft. 
And then racism, you know, refers to the to the sort of theory and practice of applying a social civic legal double standard based on ancestry and so on and so forth. And so the problem, you know, that they go on to identify uh, is, is that race craft sort of fixes the illusion of race in a sort of cultural consciousness as a reality, which sort of creates the basis for the for these sort of many and in in, in in various oppressions that that sort of con, uh, that sort of constitute racism, right? So racecraft they say is is everywhere. It affects blacks and whites, black and white workers who are sort of exploited by the American capitalist machine, and so for them the question of race sort of uh, cloaks this sort of much needed issue of tackling you know, the sort of growing inequality uh, within America. And ultimately they think that, you know, uh, there is a, there's a way in which what they call racecraft sort of inhibits our ability uh, to sort of reckon with the way in which, you know, capitalism is, is going gonna, is gonna to come for us all, especially the, the, the most vulnerable among us. And so they are, you know, sort of attending to liberal race discourse that doesn't get us close to sort of addressing the the way in which a kind of structural vulnerability that is attendant to capitalism uh, is sort of uh, is sort of the specter that, that that hangs over that hangs over hangs over our lives, uh, particularly black and white working people. Right. So to some extent, you know, they sort of argue that, you know, we're facing a, a sort of crisis of political energy. Right. Because the attention that goes into a kind of racecraft sort of detracts from, you know, attention that that could be directed at actually addressing, you know, the the vulnerabilities that are very much a part of of, of racial capitalism. And you know, this sort of gets back to to how we started, which is that there is a way in which, you know, a sort of focus on the one hand on these sort of individual attitudes, and a focus on sort of conflating race with racism actually sort of just gets in the way of, of our ability to sort of reckon with, to reckon with uh, economic inequality. It's actually something that I found myself correcting throughout our discussion, because I, I think that we, in, at least in popular culture and media, we often see a softening of the term racism, right? We, it's like a word we cannot use, the journalists cannot use, pop culture cannot use. And so there are all these euphemisms. Um, and I think that the, the way the book itself kind of plays around with the way that's been done, even in academia and even in more formal spaces is important. Um, but it's, as I said, it's something that I found myself correcting as we've been discussing it, because I keep saying race or you know racial, and I really mean racism. Um, and sometimes I might mean capitalism. And so I've been even conscious of that myself. My least favorite is race relations. <laughs> it's like the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. It's like right. if everyone could just figure out how to get along. <laughs> I'm Naomi Klein. You're listening to The Dig as well you should be. And you can support them on Patreon.com. You definitely know about The Dig since you're listening to this podcast. And you probably know about Jacobin which helps put out the dig. But you might not know about Catalyst, a journal of theory and strategy. Capitalism is once again up for debate. Catalyst, a journal of theory and strategy, is a scholarly journal produced by Jacobin Foundation that aims to do everything it can to promote and deepen this conversation. Its focus is, as the title suggests, to develop a theory and strategy with capitalism as its target, both in the North and in the global south. That's an ambitious agenda, but this is a time for thinking big. 
You can check out Catalyst's great essays, including contributions from scholars like Mike Davis, and subscribe and print for just $20 for an entire year by going to bit.ly slash digcatalyst. That's bit.ly slash digcatalyst. Wendy, the next book you suggested is another essay collection. Thick by Tressie McMillan Cottom. Why why is this book so important? So I only have positive things to say about this book and the author, of course. Uh, so <laughs> I'll try to keep my fangirling to a minimum. Um, but I, I really enjoyed this book, um, primarily because I think she has this uncanny ability to discuss incredibly hard-hitting and difficult topics in a way that has a certain lightness to it. And I think in a way that is, is accessible for all levels of of people approaching this. So I think even people who maybe are less familiar with, you know, matters of race and gender and the overlapping concerns of race, class and gender um, can read this book and enjoy it. Um, So in other words, I'm saying it's safe for white people, Um, but it's safe for white people in a way that still challenges them. And I think this is another um, skill that Tressie actually has in, in sort of sneaking in all of this analysis without you realizing it until you're done with the paragraph or you're done with the chapter or you're done with the essay. And then you say, wow, like she talked about classism that she faced as a child or, or ableism or racism in a way that I think some people may be first laugh and then you cry, right? So there's an element to it that's that's multifaceted. And I think that's why it works really well as a book, not only um, for just general reading, but also for people to have a better understanding of what intersectionality is. I think that's why it's really important for me, at least, because one of the things I've noticed in, in recent years is a complete disregard, not only for what it means, but I think a diminishing of the value of the idea and the theory. Um, and her book is sort of embodiment, an embodiment of, of the way different aspects of oppression can overlap in one's life, in particular as a Black woman and a Black woman who grew up um, in certain economic uh, circumstances. And one of the other things I think is important about the book is that she talks about a lot of the sort of quotidian everyday violence that Black women face. Um, and I think that are, that's often sort of not fully discussed or understood as we talk about violence when it comes from the police, for example. Um, Oftentimes when we discuss police brutality in the United States, unfortunately, um, the experiences of Black women at the hands of police is downplayed um, and ignored. And I don't mean um, just in the sense that, oh, we should talk about it just to like check a notch off, right, or to check um, a box. But the importance of recognizing, as we've sort of mentioned throughout this discussion, that those who are bearing the brunt of something or a certain issue have to be under their experiences have to be understood for us to sort of work on the larger problem as a whole, as it ex- as it affects other people as well. Um, so thinking about sexual assault that women black 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 women face at the hands of police, physical violence beyond sexual assault that black women face at the hands of police, and as we saw even just now with the Breonna Taylor case or the Ayanna Stanley case or so many other black women who have been murdered by police, raped by police, there's less of an emphasis on that. And sort of it helps, it can help all of us sort of uh, think about what that means and what that abs, why that absence is, is a problem, right? If we're talking about improving as a society as a whole or whatever project we're on right now, um, I'm, I'm unsure. I'm still trying to kind of wrap my head around what is happening right now. And I think all of us are. Um, so anyway, long story short, I think her book sort of introduces a lot of issues that some people may be in, unfamiliar with, but also it's a nice book for um, black women to just read and women of color in general to read. And I think 
that we can closely identify with and have affirmation of our experiences, particularly in things like, um, for example, maternal health going back. Um, in, in one of the essays, she discusses her miscarriage um, and the death of her child uh, as a result of negligence from healthcare professionals. And as someone who almost lost my own child under similar circumstances, it was very difficult to read uh, at the time. But, you know, it's something that a lot of us can, can connect with and that we face. And I think she sort of creates a space where you feel comfortable, but you also feel activated to do something about the problem that she discusses. Jared, think, thinking about what Wendy was just saying about the what is gained by digging deeper into the black experience beyond some sort of monolithic notion that attends to these distinctions of gender, sexuality, class. You know, I was sort of thinking about um, there's this uh, in the the meaning of freedom, which we're gonna we're gonna talk about. This is the the collection of essays that that Angela Davis um, sort of publishes uh, a few years ago. She has this like formulation where she's like, um, you know, we should think of political solidarity as um, as forming identity rather than um, identity forming political solidarity. <laughs> and I think that's a really, really powerful like formulation, like because it gets at the heart of, you know, what I think is a kind of is a kind of anxiety about about organizing, um, uh, you know, around around uh, uh, gender depression, organizing around racial racial oppression, organizing or organizing around racial capitalism more generally, which is that you know it seems to me that it has to start with a set of you know concrete political commitments, and you know there has to be this sort of serious confrontation with you know the fact that you know, solidarity is, is, is hard and there are going to be tensions, but that is something that we should, we should actually lean into. And I should also say that I don't understand why, you know, left movements generally can't just sort of recognize that it is those who are at the margins, who are the most vulnerable, Black women, Black queer and trans people, who um, can actually tell us something quite profound about what, what the world should look like. And it is from that point of vulnerability that I think we can we can we can we can sort of develop a, a powerful solidarity. But it shouldn't come from it shouldn't just be some kind of essential story about about identity. It should be about some political commitments. Let's actually jump and talk about the meaning of freedom by Angela Davis, since you sort of already introduced us to it. In recent years, we've seen left political theorists and historians, um, all of whom have been on this podcast, Aziz Rana, Alex Gorovich, Corey Robin engage in this project to recover the concept of freedom from conservatives and libertarians. What can the left learn by thinking with Angela Davis and the arguments she makes in this book in particular in the black radical tradition more generally about the meaning of freedom? Where does that fit into this this left project around around freedom? You know, I, I think these these sort of projects are important. You know, this way, you know, folks like uh, you know, Aziz Rana and, and Alex Gorovich, you know, I've sort of been thinking about uh, reclaiming the concept uh, and, and practice uh, of freedom. And it's important uh, in part because, you know, it does a kind of intellectual warfare, right, against, you know, the sort of way in which freedom has been sort of terribly reduced, um, you know, as you, as you point out, you know, to the sort of property-owning individual, to the market, uh, to the sort of libertarian tendencies, you know, this sort of vulgar insistence that, like, 
whatever we 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 do in life, you know, sort of on our own terms that we're just sort of we're at it alone. And that's ultimately sort of a Jacksonian freedom to oppress others. That's right. And and I think, you know, it's been incredibly damaging. You know, it sort of inhibits our ability to sort of imagine, you know, forms of of life in which, you know, freedom is sort of takes on, you know, the sort of cooperative character, um, you know, in which freedom sort of becomes like this sort of shared vision. You know, that is a that is a profoundly different freedom than the one we see, you know, as you point out, sort of Jacksonian configuration, the sort of Reagan, Reagan-esque idea about freedom, you know, as being something that uh, that is that is really just like about the the sort of enterprising individual. I think that this this wrong and it and it doesn't allow us to actually sort of, you know, get clear about it is not it does not sort of match what what is going to need to happen uh, in order for us to sort of confront you know the problem of racial capitalism, you know, to confront ecological devastation and, and climate change. Um, and so we have to get get clear about it about a different project. And so I think it's important. I think in order to sort of continue in that direction, um, you know, we, you know, say something about the, you know, the ways in which uh, the recovery, you know, of the Freedom Project for the left, you know, is actually not entirely an intervention that, you know, has sort of taken place in the in the last few years. And so, you know, like I, I think, you know, Aziz, Rana, and and Alex have written, you know, profoundly, profoundly important in, important books, but it also seems to me that we should also think about the ways in which, you know, just in just in the last half century, that the Black freedom struggle in particular has given us plenty of resources to think about, to think about what, what freedom entails. And it was happening at a time in which, you know, in the 60s and 70s, in which freedom, the concept of freedom was already being sort of radically reshaped by conservatives. And, you know, this is what, this is what Angela Davis, you know, was, was sort of, was, was all about. Um, and this is, you know, this is sort of at the heart of what of these lectures. And so, like, for example, um, you know, in one of the lectures, you know, she notes how uh, taxpayers and ordinary citizens in, in uh, Florence, Colorado, sort of banded together uh, to essentially, you know, raise money to purchase land, which they then uh, donated to the uh, California Bureau of Prisons, who then constructed, you know, this $200 million prison compound. And this all happened because citizens, you know, believed that the prison, you know, would bring jobs to their community, right? So, th- so this is a this is a profound account that she's laying out about the ways in which a sort of freedom to find work, you know, sort of becomes the basis for a profound incursion of freedom, right? Which is directed at the mass warehousing of surplus populations, and that is the kind of story that like raises questions about about what a left freedom project, you know, would entail. That is you know, not only committed to imagining, you know, a sort of life of, of the commons uh, in the context, you know, the, of, of a kind of social democratic state, but it's also committed to sort of upending the, the carceral state, you know, with so many, including, including Davis and other folks, you know, understand to make any kind of democratic future possible, uh, impossible. And so there's this way in which, you know, Davis and, and other folks are sort of thinking about the specificity of freedom and unfreedom in the post-civil rights moment that I think demands our attention. It's just another reminder, as I've said over and over during this call, it's like, what could we have done if people had listened when these things are being said the first time um, and not the 90th time and not the 100th time? You know what I mean? I, I think there's a, once again, that this the silencing and the ignoring of radicals of color 
um, and Indigenous radicals is really, it shows, I think, a problem in, insofar as we're experiencing things that could have been stopped or at least somewhat upended or slowed at the time when they were being called out the first time around, right? Um, and I think that's one of the reasons why ignoring leftists of color and radicals of color is so such a problem for our society as a whole. It's not just a problem for us, but it's a problem for, for white people too. White people fill those prisons too, right? Um, and so it's, an, it's important for us to recognize the ways that the things that people are discussing early on will eventually impact us. And it's unfortunate that racism is so powerful in this country that it silences people like Angela Davis and it keeps her from being heard or at least taken seriously um, by scholars, even in her own field, when, when it's of the utmost importance to do to do so. Wendy, speaking of, of freedom and fighting for it, you suggested a book that's been on my to-read list for quite a long time, but I have not gotten around to reading, which is We Will Shoot Back by Akinyile Omoja. Why is this book important? What does upending this narrative of, of the good, nonviolent civil rights movement versus the bad, violent black power movement and, and kind of era of, up, of, of riots and uprisings. What, what does upending that dichotomy reveal about the actual history of black struggle? I mean, I think it's important that we get beyond that false dichotomy of good and appropriate versus bad and inappropriate forms of protest, because it allows us to finally center the actual reason for the protest, which is white supremacy, right? If we're going around blaming the protesters or people involved in the struggle, or even the victims, which is a common practice um, in the United States, then we miss the actual reason for the uprisings in the first place. Um, and I think it distracts us. That preoccupation is one that's also a white supremacist preoccupation that distracts us from the real reasons that that we're doing what we're doing. I also think that sort of the erasure and whitewashing of multiple approaches of resistance by marginalized groups, and I'd argue specifically Black people in the Americas, it sort of reduces the significance of Black resistance as a whole. This is something that we've seen people who discuss the Haitian Revolution talk about quite a bit about. So people like uh, Michel Hoffman, or Sybil Fisher, um, they've made this argument about um, the ways that the West, uh, historically speaking, and just in, in popular culture, has overlooked the significance of the Haitian Revolution, at least at the time that it was happening. People were afraid, of course, of what this could mean for slave rebellions. Um, but in terms of the historical record, they downplayed the Haitian Revolution as a revolution. It was framed as a riot. It was framed as just sort of a mass murder of colonists, um, but it wasn't seen as or read as a revolution within the normal historical understanding of what revolution meant. And this was precisely because the majority of the people who led and comprised the movement were, of course, Black, um, of African descent. They were enslaved. So it challenged sort of Enlightenment-era concepts about what personhood was, and it excised, um, or at least the understanding of personhood did that excise Black and Indigenous uh, people in order to control their bodies and take their land for capital gain, respectively. Um, and so I think that this similar, we're seeing a sort of similar dehumanization and dismissal of the intellectual capacity of protesters, and that includes rioters and looters, um, because it's much easier if Black people are continued to be they're continually shown as monsters, which sort of fits into the police narrative and the reasons um, that they're going after us in the first place, or right? this sort of trumped-up idea of what Blackness is as a violent body. And I think in the in the process of dehumanizing people by virtue of calling protesters, rioters, and looters, we, we reinscribe that same problem over again. We reinstate those same myths um, that violence relies upon to justify. So a book like this, um, I think, is important for us to understand or to, to read at this time, because it, it takes away all the myths 
about the good, the quote unquote good protester, because there is no, basically the argument is there is no good protest without the quote unquote bad protester, right? The people who actually do respond to, to white supremacy and support people who are engaging in quote unquote nonviolent protests with an, a sense of self-defense, with the skills and the knowledge to defend themselves, because what they are facing is white supremacist terrorism. Um, and the author is very clear about that. And also the other thing I just wanted to point out, uh, going back to kind of the, the Pino model as well, is that this book makes it clear that these methods of resistance are not coming from, from nowhere, right? They're not peering out of thin air. He sort of traces the, the author traces the connections that are being made transnationally as well. Um, and historically, you know, over time, the ways that slave resists, the slaves resisted, the ways that civil rights activists resisted, these things are not disconnected. And it's part of a longer tradition that has been, that gets cut off when we start saying, dividing people into quote unquote good and quote unquote bad protesters. And, and even the good, quote unquote, good nonviolent protesters are only effective when they are, in fact, bad because they are disruptive. And the, this Francis Fox Piven shows this very clearly. And I think this is really a moment for her right now. Um, but but she shows it very clearly in terms of the sit down strikes in the 30s through the welfare rights organizing of the 60s, whereas liberals just have this idealized form of of protest as this kind of like purely expressive and they're never good at the time, as you said, right? Like, even if we think about people like Colin Kaepernick, everyone was decrying his supposed defiling of the flag <laughs> and violation of you know the American tradition, whatever, and insult of the armed forces. And now you're looking at Roger Goodell, again, sort of folded into this idea of capitalism trying to save itself, then saying, well, I was wrong about Colin Kaepernick, you know? So, so it's interesting to think about uh, when people are okay with, quote unquote, peaceful protests and when they're not. Yeah, taking a knee, like the most modest sort of nonviolent <laughs> protest imaginable, somehow construed as as mm -hmm. like almost terroristic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, the, the you know, this like this good 60s. Yeah. So I think about this in the context of, of the of the civil rights movement, black black power movement. Right. Um, where you have this this dichotomy between good 60s, bad 70s. Right. And this is totally the result, you know, of the sort of liberal sort of liberal retelling of, of the Black freedom struggle. And these middle-class elites, they sort of have a vested interest in sort of telling this, this sort of sanitized, this sort of sanitized story. But what is it, what is it sort of obscure, right? I'm sort of thinking about Brandon Terry, who's written this, you know, this really excellent you know, book to shape a new world in which he says in the book, right, you know, the relationship between violence and nonviolence is actually part of a, of a, of a sort of context of argument or what he calls a, a sort of problem space. And so it's like once we're able to sort of appreciate, you know, this this problem space in which, you know, violence and nonviolence are actually sort of interacting and is really and is really rich in sort of dialectical way. Right. Then we can sort of seriously confront the way in which, you know, this is actually a sort of rich sort of strategic and, and, and philosophical debate that was unfolding uh, in the in the in the context uh, of, of the black freedom struggle. And and so then it's like, what do we learn once we take seriously this problem space? Well, one, right, King actually never denies the existence of a, of a right to self-defense. I mean, that's the, that's the first thing, right? Like, he, he, he never does. Um, and, and also, we learned that King had always sort of had his, his sort of eye trained on structural violence, the sort of structural violence of the state. He says in 1968, for example, right, like that the greatest, I think the quote is like, the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today is my own government. And, and we also learned that King sort of comes to appreciate the sort of coerced, 
the sort of coercive power of, of the riot. And we can see this everywhere in, in his thinking. But, you know, just one example that just comes to mind is there's this moment, you know, months before he's, he's assassinated. You know, he's having this conversation with uh, Stanley Levinson and Andrew Young, um, Harry Belafonte. And Andrew Young basically is trying to explain away the problem by saying that, oh, yeah, you know, we can deal with this racism thing. It's not that big of a deal. You know, and King sort of, he's angered by this. He shoots back. He says, no, the problem is the whole system, right? And then he goes on to say that, like, you know, I sympathize with everything the the, the rioters feel. Um, and so there's this, even these kind of narratives, like we see that the the sort of good-bad dichotomy actually sort of obscures the sort of historical, this sort of historical complexity of what actually happened on, on the ground. Um, and then the, the, the sort of final thing I, I'll, I'll say um, is that, you know, we can sort of see a kind of, you know, as Wendy sort of pointed out, like the, a sort of interplay uh, between violence and nonviolence sort of playing out today, right? So it's like, you know, we have this influx, radical opinion in mainstream publications, sort of without an acknowledgement that one of the reasons, right, like that these opinions have sort of appeared. And one of the reasons that we've seen an out, a sort of outpouring in the streets, I think is in part because of the destruction of property. I mean, it just seems to me that that there is a sort of unnameable thing that has sort of made uh, the sort of insurgence of a, of, a, of a kind of radicalism possible, right? Like I can't imagine that we would be here if that precinct in Minneapolis were not set on fire. And so, you know, the, you know, so, so like one question is like, you know, what would it mean to sort of name these sort of riotous acts, you know, as the source of, of you know, a kind of radicalism breaking, breaking through in, in, into the public scene? Speaking of the prior era, of black radicalism and its somewhat surprising trajectory. Another book you put forward, Jared, is Jackson Rising by Kalia Kuno and Ajamu Nangwaya. Why is this book important? One one thing that's remarkable about this book, but also the, the broader kind of movement from which the book emerges, is how it connects this older history of black nationalism, the Republic of New Africa, with its origins in the North, I believe, Detroit, maybe, to this very much alive present-day Black radical politics in Jackson, Mississippi. So uh, uh, Chokwe Lumumba, who was the the, the mayor of, of Jackson before, you know, his his untimely death, he starts out actually not wanting to be uh, elected to office at all. You know, sort of he and other folks affiliated with this organization called um, the Malcolm X Grassroots Movement, they sort of set out to uh, to to organize the black community in Jackson, uh, as well as immigrants and and poor whites, and they're they're interested in you know sort of starting this this organization, which uh, is is ultimately going to be called Cooperation Jackson. And what are they interested in? They're interested in what they call a solidarity economy, right? This is an economy that sort of links workers, consumers, housing cooperatives, you know, urban farms into this this sort of cooperative space that is all about the flourishing of of the community. You know, as you sort of uh, point point out, and in, in sort of how you how you sort of frame the the, the question, um, they uh, are in fact sort of drawing on a long tradition of struggle, black nationalist struggle, to sort of free the land, which is you know, um, which is how sort of Robin Robin Kelly has put it put it put it recently, and that's actually been a sort of call uh, of, of of the organization, um, and they take themselves to be, you know, very much in the tradition of. Of, of another group that was sort of uh, organizing in the 70s called the Provisional Government of the New Republic uh, of the Republic of New Africa. And, 
you know, they were all about the sort of, you know, that sort of abolition of classless society. They were all about a sort of direct confrontation uh, with the fact that uh, so many of the members of the community, like, had no control of resources, right? They lacked ownership over, you know, sort of essential businesses and social infrastructures. Uh, they couldn't create laws. And, you know, this coupled with the fact that that the state was just, was could kill people and subject them to all manners of sort of structural vulnerabilities as it saw fit. And so cooperative, uh, Cooperation Jackson essentially uh, was about, you know, sort of recovering this vision of community power. Perhaps unlike Republic of, 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 of New Africa, you know, the kind of sort of economic, I guess, cooperative Black nationalism, you know, is actually not founded on the assumption of, of a kind of like essential racial identity, which is which is very much a part of the sort of historical tradition of, of Black nationalism. So there is a kind of break. And so you have, but there is actually something really imaginative about this too, because you have this organization that is, you know, coming out of the, you know, the sort of Black nationalist tradition, returning again and, and again to some of the, the sort of precepts and principles of that tradition. Um, but they nevertheless, you know, they have this sort of universalist, this sort of universalist political imagination. And how is that, right? It's because of the political imagination. It's because at the heart of Cooperation Jackson, um, you know, there's this idea that the capitalism is not going to spare uh, black poor, black and white poor, poor and working people in the city. And because of that assessment, the thinking is that, you know, we need to band together and we need to insist on a kind of dignity. Wendy, what lessons, both good and bad, can, can we learn from the black nationalist? So I think that's an important question because lately what I've seen coming up a lot is is the question of whether or not left's organizing is is incoherent or in, sorry incongruent with nationalist projects. And I've while I've seen an embrace, for example, of the Palestinian struggle, there's also a question of like on the one hand, there's an embrace of the Palestinian struggle fairly unequivocally by leftists. There's a debate of whether or not uh, indigenous people have rights in this country to land, for example. Um, and what what that looks like as well for people of African descent um, who are descendants of slaves in this country, what do reparations or land access look like in a space that's still a settler colonial state. Um, and so I think that the questions of Black nationalism or questions that are raised by Black nationalism sometimes run head on with leftist projects and or also other nationalist projects that are simultaneous and happening on the same lands. Um, so I think it's an important question to ask. It's not one that I have any answers toward uh, or answers for, I should say. Um, but it's one that, that I think is, is it's a debate that's being waged in real time. And, and especially uh, it even comes up in terms of like with, with regard to the Syrian struggle and things like that. It's come up multiple times. What does it look like for indigenous peoples to rise up and demand to be heard, to man, demand land, demand rights and reparative measures um, when there's still a colonial project in being engaged in uh, in real time? Note for listeners that either right before this episode airs or right after I'll be posting with Johanna Fernandez on her new book on the young Lords, and we get into a lot of detail on the questions around revolutionary nationalism and how the Young Lords and the BPP very much saw that as as part of a broader multiracial struggle against capitalism as well. Um, and that's not quite the trade off that I think a lot of people might might sort of like simplistically impose backwards on on at least the radical left currents of Black nationalism. There's also the the issue um, that comes up a lot as well as as 
insofar as Black nationalism and other nationalist projects are framed as identity politics, once again. Um, And that that serves as yet another conflict that I see sort of arising when we get into this discussion, because there are lots of Black nationalist projects that are inherently communists or you know, fairly clearly left-leaning. Um, and, and they're basing their autonomy on a sort of equity model that would be, we'd be wise to take up as a nation, but I don't think, you know, I, I think there's some somewhat of a disconnect between those different sets of activists. And it's unfortunate because I think we could all learn from one another um, to do better. The, the one thing, um, the one thing I, w- I would, I would add, um, you know, in terms of like, you know, what, you know, what can the, what can the left you know, sort of uh, learn about about a project like Co- uh, Cooperation Jackson. So, I mean, it may be that um, that that the kind of you know, sort of uh, to some extent, the sort of political struggle will sort of primarily, um, at least in the sh- in the short run, sort of be, you know, at the sort of local local and, and municipal level. You know, it may be that the sort of the sort of building of of you know the sort of anti capitalist habits uh, and, and sort of anti-capitalist social practices uh, might sort of have to begin sort of when sort of where, uh, you know, people sort of uh, people sort of find themselves where they're able to sort of uh, potentially have the most sort of say in terms of shaping a, poli- a, a sort of political struggle. So it's like after after all, right, like to some extent, you know, the struggle for freedom or whatever is, is sort of going to be waged at the local level, it's going to be waged in the workplace. And it may be that, you know, a project like Cooperation Jackson is, is just saying um, that that perhaps we need to sort of just begin, you know, to sort of become critical about the lack of control, you know, that people have uh, in, in, in their lives by sort of beginning at the, at the local and municipal level. Wendy, you also suggested the book Out of the House of Bondage by Thavolia Glimpf. Why is this book important. What do we understand about slavery that we otherwise don't when we incorporate gender and women into the history? Um, So this book came out fairly early. I believe it came out in like the late 90s. Um, So it predates a lot of the debates that we currently have where they are really engaging in history, at least engaging the role of the female slave master or the female mistress of the wife of the male slave master and her role and control in, in the sort of domestic space in particular over the bodies and lives of enslaved peoples. Um, So in that way, I think I chose this book because it's one of the earliest books to really go into this. And um, Thavolia Glimpse sort of challenges Marxist readings of slavery, um, in particular with regard to the intricacies of the female slave experience as a quote-unquote product or object, uh, at least being seen as such, being a reproductive body as well. Um, So producing more, having the reproductive potential um, as a slave who can give birth. I really, I like this book, and I think it's an important book for us to read because it breaks down a lot of the presumptions about quote-unquote solidarity that can be forged between Black and white women at this time. Um, There was a myth sort of, the myth of sorts that because white women were so oppressed um, at the time that they could empathize with slaves and thus could be potential comrades. And while that's nice to think about, um, it's not in line necessarily with the reality. I think that nowadays, again, I I often touch on popular culture because I think it's where we kind of see a trickle down from academia into everyday discourse about these otherwise sort of 
topics that are kept up in the ivory tower or in books that people may not read. But I think it's it's important to think about the Karen, right? Or the Becky, or particularly <laughs> the role of the Karen, because this idea of uh, the Karen being the one to call the manager, the one to use to ex- to assert or exert authority by virtue of often relying on her woman, white womanhood, right? And the sympathies that that elicits. Um, so I, I find that it's, I find that it's important for us to think about sort of the historical origins of something like that and understand that in this country, we have a history. We can see a history um, throughout uh, the, the construction of white womanhood as a foil to black womanhood and, and the sort of uh, social and economic consequences of that construction, that bifurcation of what white and black means as it, as it boils down to femininity and womanhood. Um, the other thing that I think is really important about the book is that she talks in the second half about the, the way the struggles against enslavement were led by slaves themselves. Um, we, we, again, as I mentioned before, we talk about the Haitian Revolution in the United States, and we have discussions about revolution as waged, um, for example, within the Civil War and the like, but there's less of a real discussion about what slaves were doing at the time during the Civil War and how they were engaged in subversive activities, sometimes um, in the smallest of ways. And one of the things that she mentions is um, that, for example, enslaved women, once they were free or, you know, gained their freedom through struggle of their own, struggles of their own, they would take things like forks, knives, and spoons because slaves were made, in many cases, to eat on the floor without any utensils. They would take clothing, curtains, all sorts of uh, house housewares and things like that. And it's something that these, these tiny details make you think about what resistance means in, in our everyday objects and something that's very small, but that can be a symbol of, of hope and change. And I also think it's, it's a sort of, it's important to think about the beginnings, right? It's a reminder that things have to begin somewhere and your life, your new life may begin with a fork or a knife or a spoon or a dress. Um, and it's seemingly inconsequential, but it's something that's very important to the bearer of this new object and the way it's refashioned by a formerly enslaved person and its meaning. And I think it kind of, the book opens up a sort of symbolic discussion for us to think about now as we're engaged in brand new contemporary struggle of sorts um, and what small victories we can have and how we can build upon them for much larger ones. But yeah, I think that the the main takeaway in, in terms of connecting present and past is, is with regard to not sort of hitching our horses to, or I guess being being naive, I should say, to the prospect of allyship as well. And that's something that I think people like D'Angelo hopes that we ignore. And people like Glimp emphasize the structural inequalities and structural impediments um, to those those potential solidarities. So the last book that we're going to talk about briefly before we finish up is Golden Gulag, a classic on the political economy of mass incarceration by Ruth Wilson Gilmore, who I'm hoping to have on to talk about just that book sometime in the next few months. Why is the book important? What does providing this sort of political economic analysis of the rise of mass incarceration in one of its geographic epicenters, California, at a moment that was really critical to its takeoff historically, the 1990s, what does that allow us to learn looking back to that time and place from here and now? Uh, So first of all, I cannot recommend this book enough, not just because of the sort of um, the sort of substance of arguments, uh, you know, that she makes about, you know, the sort of relationship between 
incarceration and, and political economy, uh, which we can talk a little bit about, but also just because of the, the form of the book, like uh, the way that, you know, the book sort of comes out of uh, her own sort of activist engagements, uh, both as, a, as one of the founding members of Critical Resistance, the Critical Resistance is the sort of prison, uh, prison abolitionist uh, group based and founded, founded in California, and also, um, you know, because the, the book is, is, is basically uh, coming out of, you know, this sort of study group uh, that she, Ruth Wilson Gilmore, is sort of involved with, um, where, you know, these Black mothers are sort of uh, working through and thinking about these laws that are responsible for the sort of mass warehousing of, of poor and working people. And you know, the result of, of this, this study uh, is this book, Golden Gulag. And, you know, one reason for sort of beginning uh, with this, this praise about like, you know, the way that kind of uh, social justice is sort of can be tied up in, in, a, in a sort of scholarly project is because, you know, it helps us to sort of get clear about the sort of origins of the questions that, that she's raising, that it's not just about a sort of scholarly intervention, but she actually helps to change the world, uh, along with folks around the, the, the country who are organizing against the car carceral state. So there's a way that she's sort of connected uh, to, to, the, to this problem. Uh, and you can sort of feel the sort of love and the sort of passion in the project. And you can sort of feel that she actually cares deeply about, about another kind of world. And so what is, what is the basic argument? Well, the basic argument is that, you know, have been these sort of prevailing assumptions about why prisons were being expanded in the state of California. And she basically says that, you know, many of these uh, assumptions are, are misguided in, in one way or another or are incomplete, right? So this idea that prison expansion, you know, is the sort of result of rising crime. She says that, no, that's not right because at the time of expansion, uh, you know, sort of massive expansion in California, crime was actually decreasing, right? She says that, you know, there's this idea that, you know, prisons were being expanded because of a kind of deepening drug epidemic, right? Because gangs were sort of heavily involved in drug trafficking. She also says, no, this isn't right, because it turns out that, you know, drug use had been, you know, on the decline, uh, you know, since the 1970s. And also because drug dealers, you know, who were, who were sort of being arrested and incarcerated were not being, gang leaders who were sort of being uh, arrested were not being arrested because of, because of some kind of like drug affiliation. And then finally, you know, she's like, this idea that, uh, you know, prison expansion is a sort of straightforward racial cleansing story. She's like, no, that's also not quite right. Right. So the idea that prisons were the sort of new slavery, she says, you know, sort of has to assume that the prisons were actually being used as a, as a source of unfree labor uh, for private prisons. That's actually not how things unfold, as she tells us. Right. Most prison, most prisoners, uh, on the one hand, are idle. Uh, and those who do work uh, tend to work for public agencies that are not in the business of profiteering. And so, and so now the question is like, okay, well, what is the sort of source of prison expansion? And she tells us, she says that, you know, prisons are these like partial geographical solutions um, to political economic crises organized by the state, which is itself in crisis. It means that when the state has a kind of idle surplus, whether it's surplus land or surplus capital or surplus people, surplus populations, which is, by the way, the result of, of deindustrialization and dispossession, which, she, which she, she, she notes, 
the state needs to find stability for this kind of surplus. And how does the state do that? Well, as opposed to sort of doing some some sort of deep reflection about, you know, how to to address the surplus, rather rather than doing some sort of deep reflection about, you know, a kind of, you know, broadening the sort of the the social safety net, broadening the the, the welfare state. A social democratic fix to the contradiction. That's, that's right. Um, what what happens is California lawmakers turn to what they believe uh, at that time can sort of manage the crisis. And what they believe can can sort of manage, you know, this crisis is our prisons. And that is that is a sort of profound argument because it also helps us in our in our own time to sort of get clear about what our relationship, what the relationship of of the people uh, to the state is. It helps us to get clear about, you know, what is the sort of outcome of the crisis of deindustrialization, right? Which can which can only be, uh, as she as she tells us the sort of policing and the mass warehousing of people, which is what happens in California. But it's a story that happens across the country, actually. Um, And she tells us that story, I think, in a a quite brilliant way. And it's this kind of engagement uh, that I think, um, you know, folks on the left should should be reading and reading quite widely um, and deeply. And and this is why defund police is such an expansive demand that immediately indicts the entirety of neoliberalism and the carceral state and even... I guess somewhat more nascently, the imperial state. Wendy, final thoughts on this? Final thoughts? I know you have to have to run. No, I just had a quick question actually about uh, Golden Gulag because I haven't read it before. But um, when was it written? Uh, it was written in uh, 2007. Okay, I was just wondering where does uh, she place the the issue of of incarcerated people being used as laborers so so heavily now so for example especially if we're thinking of the present moment where you're looking at some of the only people who are employed quote unquote being incarcerated people who are working to get rid of the wildfires in California and Arizona and other parts of the country how does that work for a warehouse population to be a productive population for capital but not gaining themselves well, I think the the sort of central question that she's I mean, right. Like, so I don't think she sort of denies, um, you know, the the sort of role of a kind of of prison labor in the sort of regime of car, of the carceral state. But in California, but I do think she's sort of thinking she's she's sort of trying to work through the the sort of justifications for for the initial sort of expansion of, of prisons. Not right. So I don't think it's a sort of commentary on, um, you know, this idea that prisons uh, are not sort of using the sort of labor of of incarcerated folks rather i think she's just like okay well how is this this sort of apparatus sort of working initially what are the justifications that are being made for it in the in the state of california by these lawmakers and and i think um and i think that's the sort of the sort of source of her concern rather than uh you know sort of trying to explain away you know the sort of story about labor labor productivity yeah it's more of a a, a critique if i understand correctly of this um kind of commonplace idea on the left and I think amongst people in the United States in general that mass incarceration political economic role is primarily a more kind of direct profit motive. You mm-hmm. see all the kind of excess emphasis on private prisons, mm-hmm. which outside of immigration detention actually play a fairly small role in the mass incarceration picture. So mm-hmm. Jared, is it right that what, what Ruthie's trying to do more is say, yes, it is about political economy, but but not maybe not in the way that you think? Right. Um, I mean, you know, as a kind of, you know, sort of re- rhetorical claim, like you've seen, uh, I'm sure you've like heard activists who say like prisons are, the, you know, the new the new slavery. 
and you know, it's a powerful sort of rhetorical claim in part because it sort of helps us to get clear about, you know, the way that a, that a kind of sort of the sort of regime of, of 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 domination, the regime of the racial state, sort of gets produced and reproduced uh, from the moment of uh, of chattel slavery, uh, and it sort of gets reproduced uh, after after its its sort of uh, uh, abolition, and part of what she's sort of trying to work through is sort of getting beyond this sort of, you know, this sort of rhetorical, this sort of rhetorical move to actually think about like what, you know, at this sort of micro sort of granular level, like what is sort of happening by way of the justifications that are made for expanding the, the carceral state. And it seems to me that, you know, what she is essentially trying to get at is that there are reasons for for the expansion of, of of prisons in the state of California that sort of move a bit beyond you know this sort of uh this sort of rhetorical claim about the new slavery Jared Loggins and Wendy Muse thank you both very very much thank you thank you Jared Loggins is a political theorist of Black politics and a Ph.D. candidate at Brown University. He is the co-author with Andrew Douglas of the forthcoming book, Prophet of Discontent, Martin Luther King Jr. and the Critique of Racial Capitalism. Wendy Muse is a Ph.D. candidate in history at NYU and also the creator of The Left Pocket Project and Podcast. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that the discovery of gold and silver in America, the extirpation, enslavement, and entombment in mines of the aboriginal population, the beginning of the conquest and looting of the East Indies, the turning of Africa into a warren for the commercial hunting of black skins, signaled the rosy dawn of the era of capitalist production. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Julia Rock and Zachary Nin. Our senior advisor is Thea Riofrancos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and do find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it is on iTunes, you can also leave us a nice review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. So does spreading the word to your friends. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us on Patreon and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation going. Even a few bucks is huge. Music